Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 133 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up this week, we discussed the value of vaccination passports. We have news from Wisoft that they've produced a 12ID19 safe solution for the use of shared printers. And we have news of a case that's reached the CJEU where a decision is awaited on whether teachers have to give their consent to take part in Zoom or other video home teaching methods. And if that holds true, what impact that will have not just on the teaching profession, but other industries and organisations too. We then have news that the UK's charities could be hit by a double whammy on donations that they receive from European citizens. And then following on from an article we had last week, we have news of a data breach at Clubhouse. And whilst we're talking about Clubhouse, please don't forget to join us at 6pm on Monday the 1st of March in Clubhouse, where we're holding an exclusive question and answer session with Dr Jackie Taylor live in Clubhouse. If you'd like to join us for that, please go to https colon slash slash sdu.me slash h5. We then have news of a data breach at Nursery Cam, and then news that Empower has suspended access to its mobile app after a data breach in the app allowed bad actors to access users' personal information. We then travel to Canada, where there's news of a data breach at aircraft manufacturer Bombardier, And then we travel to India, where the Indian Army has suffered from a data breach. And then we return to the UK for our final article this week, where we look at whether Article 49 is the golden bullet some believe it to be for data transfers outside the EU and the UK. And a reminder once again, don't forget to join us at 6pm GMT on Monday the 1st of March to join in our live Q&A on Clubhouse with Dr Jackie Taylor, which follows on from our interview, which we recorded and broadcast in episode 132 last week. So if you've not yet listened to episode 132, please go back and listen to that. If you have any feedback on GDPR Weekly Show, please email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback which we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Stay home, stay safe. We begin this week with a look at the use of vaccination passports, which has become a hot issue in the later stages of the Top ID19 pandemic, as vaccinations have become available. I guess the first question a lot of people ask is, what form is the vaccination passport going to take? Well, it seems almost certain that it's going to be a electronic code, rather than a paper document, because the danger of paper documents is they're too easily forged. And indeed, people who have had the vaccination receive a vaccination card at the moment, which is a paper document, and they're told not to post a clear image of it on social media because of the fear that people will create fraudulent copies. So it's likely to be electronic, and therefore likely to take two forms. It's either going to be a QR code on people's mobile phones, or... It could actually be a physical device. It could be a small device like the size of a USB key, which would be issued to people, and people can then pass that to a suitable reader when they visit restaurants or other premises to prove that they've been vaccinated. So the actual practicalities of delivering a vaccination passport are relatively simple. 
However, there are some legal questions to be had. The first one is the whole question of the laws on discrimination and whether someone could rightfully claim that they were being discriminated against if they didn't have a vaccination passport and because of that they weren't allowed access to a restaurant, theatre, pub, football stadium, whatever. Now here in the UK, the Equality Act 2010 sets out the legal rules banning particular types of discrimination, offering comprehensive protection against discrimination on the grounds of age, disability, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, and pregnancy and maternity. However, of course, it's silent on the whole issue of COVID-19 vaccinations because COVID-19 didn't exist back in 2010. However, there are those that argue that vaccination or immunity from coronavirus is not a protected characteristic and therefore it doesn't fall under the Equality Act in any way at all. But that's ignoring the fact that the Equality Act allows for what's called indirect discrimination. And that occurs when either a business or service provider denies access to somebody because of a rule they've brought in, such as our customers must have vaccination passports that the rule impacts disproportionately on people with a protected characteristic, such as age or pregnancy or race, and that there's no good business reason to justify the otherwise discriminatory rule. And here it's the protected characteristics which are a particular issue, because there may be those with medical conditions whose doctors have advised them not to have the vaccination. And equally, it's known that COVID-19, for whatever reason, is more prevalent amongst the black and minority ethnic population. And therefore, they could argue that they were being unfairly discriminated against. And of course, we know that for whatever reason, vaccine uptake is also lower in the black and minority ethnic community. And what about children who don't need to have the vaccination at all at the moment? And of course, there's a whole issue that we still don't know for certain that the vaccination prevents you being able to spread COVID-19, even if it actually subdues the symptoms of COVID-19. So if you could still be a spreader then what's the worth of the vaccination passport in the first place? Now, the courts have already established that it is legal for an employer, for new employees, to insist that their new employees have either had COVID-19 and therefore have immunity, or have had the vaccination. But that only applies to new employees taken on from now onwards. It doesn't apply to people who've already worked for you for years. These are, again, the rules that, you know, the contract has to be what was there when they started their employment with you. So it's likely that it's going to need a court decision at some point to determine whether vaccination passports are valid or not. Turning to GDPR, there's nothing about vaccination passport that makes it unlawful per se. The government or whichever company it contracts out to to provide the vaccination passports with a strong task that they must make sure their data processes are 100% concrete so that they don't have any danger of a data breach. But of course the truth is, is that if a pub or a restaurant or theatre chooses to introduce the rule that you can't access their premises without a vaccination passport or without proof that you are immune, then your only course of action at the moment would be to issue a claim in the county court. And that might take months or given the current backlog of cases, could even take years to reach a conclusion and was ultimately could then end up going to the High Court and ultimately to the Supreme Court if your pockets are deep enough to fund the lawyers for a campaign that long. And of course we don't know what effect at all it's going to have on international travel because we've only spoken in this after all about the UK. You know, if the UK decides that vaccination passports are valid, but every other country in the EU, for instance, decides that they're not, 
then for international travel and a vaccination passport is effectively no passport at all. This is a fascinating issue which we're bound to return to later in 2021 because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And although here in the UK, of course, we've all got dates now to look forward to, I'm sure lots of people with children at home who are home stealing can't wait for the 8th of March when their children can return to school. Although, don't be too joyful about the 8th of March because the government's also now said that's the day on which political campaigners can start knocking on your door trying to win your vote for the local elections to be held on the 6th of May. And of course the 21st of June, which as well as being Midsummer's Day, is the day which, if everything goes to plan, all of the current COVID-19 restrictions will be lifted. We will be keeping a close eye on things COVID-19 related as we continue through 2021 and bring you regular updates here on the GPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Same with COVID-19 and an issue which has been highlighted by a company called Ysoft Corporation, the leading enterprise workflow solutions provider, is the whole issue of employees using shared printers when you return to the office. Now, it's not unusual in this scenario for employees to either have to enter a code using their fingers onto the screen of the printer or by inserting an electronic card into the printer. But either of these, of course, have the issue of potential transfer of viruses such as COVID-19. So now while it's probably still the major idea to keep some wipes or other means of cleaning the screen near the printer, Ysoft have come up with a solution called the Ysoft MFX Mobile Reader, which plugs into the USB socket on the printer and enables users to control and access the printer from the device, a wireless device that they have, and so they have no need to physically touch the screen or control parts of the printer at all. We've not had a chance to try this out ourselves yet, but from what we've seen of the device, it looks like a sensible precaution against spreading diseases via the printer control screen. So if you're interested, then just Google Ysoft MFX Mobile Reader, and you'll be able to find out all about it. We should also add for the sake of transparency that we have not received any payment from Ysoft for this article. Stay home, stay safe. One thing we've all become very familiar with during the top ID19 pandemic is the whole issue of conducting meetings remotely, whether that be via Zoom, Teams, Skype or whatever application. We've all got used to working that way. And of course, it's now also the situation where teachers are performing school lessons via Zoom or equivalents to pupils who are at the moment having to be schooled at home. Teachers in particular, but it's likely that the ruling will apply to all employees who are using remote conferencing, have raised the issue of whether they should be asked to give specific consent of their images and personal information prior to performing homeschooling because their argument is is that the children have to provide consent normally via their parents to take part in homeschooling and to be visible on the zoom screen during the session and so the teachers are arguing well why shouldn't we have to give our consent too why should it be implied now the employer's view on this is widely that it is implied because 
you need to do what you need to do to fulfil your contract of employment. If you're a teacher, your contract of employment will be that you have to teach children, and therefore this is simply a method of teaching children, and therefore falls under your contract of employment, and you don't need to be asked specific consent, because obviously you would have the issue of what do you do if a teacher doesn't consent, especially if it's a teacher directly employed by the school, because then you get into the whole issue of employees cannot give free consent to their employer in any circumstances because of the imposed restrictions by the fact that their employer is asking them to give consent and therefore presumably there's always going to be the fear that if they don't give consent they won't have a job anymore. And so this whole issue has now made its way to the Court of Justice of the European Union from a dispute which has arisen in Germany but of course because of the way it works particularly with uh, GDPR then the judgment will have issues across all 27 European countries and will probably still have an effect here in the UK because there is a ongoing willingness, certainly at the moment, on the part of the UK government to keep UK GDPR in line with EU GDPR and indeed it's rather a necessity, particularly all the time whilst we're still waiting for the adequacy decision which we mentioned have been issued in draft in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, so if you want to catch up on that, please do go back and listen again to episode 132 of the GDPR Weekly Show. But given that, it's highly likely the UK will take notice of this court ruling just as much as other EU countries. The case is actually centred originally around a decision by the Administrative Court of Weisbaden in Germany, who ruled that teachers did not need to specifically give consent. But as a result of that, it's now been escalated, as I say, to the Central Court of Justice in the EU. And of course, it seems likely that if the ruling from the CJEU is that consent is required, then it won't just be for teachers. It will be for all employees using video conferencing. Now, it's going to be a fairly simple thing, probably, for most companies to organise. It's just a case of sending a form out to your employees, presumably by email at the moment, asking them to confirm their consent, that they're happy to have their images and voice contained within the video conferencing. Where I think you're going to need to be careful is to specify what's going to happen to the Zoom recordings or the equivalent if you are recording the meetings, rather than it just being a one-off and once the meeting's finished, then, you know, there is no recording of it, or at least no um, electronic recording of it in the form of video and audio. So we watched this case with great interest and as soon as we have a judgment from the CJEU we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now the rest of this week's news. Since we issued our guidance in previous episodes about needing a European agent if you are based in the UK and don't have an EU physical place of business but you do have clients in the EU We've been contacted by a number of charities to our help desk and details of how to do that will come up at the end of this article to ask what their situation is because they don't actually have customers in the EU but they do have donors in the EU. So we've done a bit of investigation and our advice is that charities who have donors in the EU really need to establish an agent within the EU And as always, if you'd like us to take you through the stages necessary there and get you registered with an agent, and we have agents we can use within the EU, please just get in touch with us via helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. But there's also the issue of tax on donations, because at the moment, 
or I should say before before the 1st of January this year, UK citizens living in the EU and making charitable donations could claim gift aid on those donations just the same as if they were in the UK. And that, of course, is a benefit to the charity because in most cases it means the charity gets another 25% or so on top of your donation to their funds. However, since the 1st of January, that capability has been removed and we suspect that lots of charities are probably not up to date on that yet. So if you are a charity and you do have donors in the EU, do not include those donors' donations on your gift aid claims to HMRC because A, you run the risk of the claim being rejected and B, you're probably also acting outside of the law. Now, there's nothing we can do, unfortunately, to help you on the gift aid situation. But, as we mentioned earlier, we can most definitely help you by setting up an EU agent, and that will at least aid all your problems with data retention and storage on those donors that you have within the EU. So it really is a must-have for you, not an optional extra. And so, please do contact us, and we'd be delighted to help you through that process. It's not as expensive as you might think especially for charities. We will cover this issue again in future episodes of the GPL Week Show as we progress through 2021 and doubtless there will be other tweaks and challenges to the operation of charity donors with where the charity is based in the UK and the donors are based in the EU. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. <laughs> If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, you'll remember that last week in episode 132, we had an extensive interview with Dr. Jackie Taylor about security at Clubhouse. And indeed, don't forget that tomorrow evening, on Monday the 1st of March 2021, we'll be holding a live Q&A with Dr. Jackie Taylor in Clubhouse. And if you have an Apple device, an iOS device, and you'd like to join us in that live Q&A, you can do so by going to https colon slash slash sdu dot me slash h5. That's sdu.me du dot me slash h5. And we look forward to seeing as many of you there as possible. However, to come back to the whole issue of Clubhouse and security, it was revealed this week that they have had a data breach. A third-party developer designed an open-source app that allowed Android smartphones to access the invite-only iPhone service. It is believed that a programmer in mainland China designed and made available open-source code on GitHub. The developer said the app was designed to allow anyone to listen to audio on Clubhouse without an invite code with access to various personal sessions. It should be noted that it only allows them to listen. They can't take part in the discussion, but they can listen to the discussion, or they could. Clubhouse say that they became aware of this and they chose the loophole which allowed this to take place rapidly and that there was believed to be no personal data lost in the data breach and they're confident that this particular data breach will not reoccur in the future. We will be raising this data breach with Dr Jackie Taylor tomorrow in our live interview and we will get her response then. Nursery Cam, a webcam system that lets parents drop in and watch their children while at nursery store, has written to families to tell them of a data breach. Nursery Cam said it did not believe the incident had involved any youngsters or staff being watched without their permission, but it had shut down its server as a precautionary measure. 
Nursery Tam, based in Guildford in Surrey, said that its service is used by about 40 nurseries across the UK and it said it had notified the ICO about the data breach. Nursery Tam said it first became aware of the incident shortly after 5pm GMT on Friday. It added that the service would remain suspended until a security fix was in place. The firm said that a loophole in its systems had been used to obtain data from parents' viewing accounts, including usernames, passwords, names and email addresses. The person who identified the loophole has so far acted responsibly, said Nursery Cam Director Dr Melissa Tao. He has stated that he has no intention to use this to do any harm and wants to see Nursery Cam raise the overall standards of our security measures. Ms Tao said that she did not believe the breach had been related to the previous alleged flaws that Mr Tierney, another data investigator, had brought to their attention. Nursery Cam sincerely apologises to all our parent users and nurseries for the incident. We are very sorry, she added. If we get any update on this, either from Nursery Cam or from the ICO, we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. UK energy giant Empower has permanently closed its mobile app after finding that hackers had used it to steal sensitive information from customers. The company will not bring the app back in the future as it was due to be withdrawn anyway within the next few weeks following Empower's acquisition by Eon. Users can continue to access their Empower accounts via the Empower website. The Empower data breach was first reported by Money Saving Expert, which claimed the unauthorised access happened prior to the 2nd of February 2021. Empower have not said how many accounts were affected, but has said that all affected accounts have been locked. The company said its IT teams identified suspicious activity affecting its mobile app, and it's believed that unidentified cyber actors used a credential stuffing attack to access customer accounts using login data, which they'd stolen from another website. The hackers may have been able to view users' personal information, partial financial information, and contact preferences. Empower says it's alerted all affected customers and advised them to change their passwords as early as possible. Those affected are also being encouraged to change their passwords on other accounts if they use the same passwords across multiple services. Empower said there was no risk to users' bank accounts with limited information that was accessed and added that it has informed the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, about the attack. If we get any further update on this, either from Empower or the Information Commissioner's Office, we will just bring it to you in the next verbal episode of the GDPR Week's show. Canadian airplane manufacturer Bombardier announced that it suffered a breach that exposed employee, customer and supplier data. Bombardier, headquartered in Montreal in Canada, is present in more than 12 countries around the world, including its production engineering sites and its customer support network. The corporation supports a worldwide fleet of approximately 4,900 aircraft in service, with a wide variety of multinational corporations, charter and fractional ownership providers, governments and private individuals. It is understood that Bombardier has brought in independent cybersecurity and forensic professionals to provide external confirmation that the company's security controls were effective in limiting the scope and extent of the incident. Bombardier says it's also notified all appropriate authorities, including law enforcement where required, and will continue to work with the authorities as its investigation continues. It is believed that the attack has gained access via a vulnerability in Acelion FTA, a third-party web server used to host and share large files, which allowed them to steal sensitive information and publish it on a dark web portal run by a ransomware gang. It's understood that approximately 130 employees of Bombardier in Costa Rica were impacted by the incident. Bombardier said that manufacturing and customer support operations have not been impacted or interrupted. Bombardier also went on to say that it did not believe the company had been specifically targeted. 
the vulnerability impacted multiple organisations using the same application. If we receive any further updates from Bombardier, we will of course bring them to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay home, stay safe. To India now, and the Indian Army has ordered a probe into an alleged case of a data breach in the Northern Command after a soldier was found to be passing data to Pakistani operatives. The data breach took place when the soldier from Punjab, posted under the Northern Command, was caught by officials dealing with the alleged issue, army sources said. After the incident came to light, a talk inquiry has been ordered to probe how the soldier could get access to the data and the extent to which he'd leaked the information to Pakistani agencies. The date breach took place when the Indian side was deeply engaged in a military standoff with the Chinese military. According to the sources, the probe would also find out how deeply the soldier was engaged with enemy operatives and how much was he compromised by them. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you may remember that back in episode 131, we mentioned about the possibility to use Article 49 of GDPR to transfer data between the EU and the UK and countries external to the EU and UK. We're going to look into this a little bit deeper following an inquiry to our help desk during the week. Now, the common reasons that Article 49 can be used are for transfers based on the data subject's explicit consent, having been informed of the possible risk of the transfer, transfers necessary for performance of the contract with the data subject, transfers necessary for important reasons of public interest, and you are making a one-off transfer and it is in your compelling legitimate interest. Well, the EDPB have issued a bit more guidance on this now, and they're saying that where in option two of the reasons why you might use Article 49, which is transfers necessary for the performance of a contract with the data subject, their view is that Article 49 can only be used if you can justify that on the basis that whatever you need done to the data, so whatever process you need to happen to the data of the data subject, can only be performed by an organisation outside of the EU and UK. So let's take an example. Let's suppose you have a particularly complicated algorithm which calculates people's pay, and that algorithm can only be performed by a company that's based in the USA. Then, using the criteria of Article 49, you could transfer the data to that operator, to that processor, to perform that calculation on the data and return the results to you. However, you can't do that solely through choice. You have to justify that that is the only company, or the only country perhaps, in which that calculation can take place. If there is a UK or an EU company, you could perform that calculation, but you're simply not using them because they're more expensive than the US equivalent. Then, sorry, the ruling from the EDPB is that you can't use Article 49 to justify that data transfer. So Article 49 may not be the golden key that unlocks the whole issue of data transfers outside of the EU and the UK, but it certainly will be in a lot of cases, but it means you will just need to carry out very careful investigation before you invoke Article 49 as your reason for transferring the data to a processor outside of the EU or the UK. If you think that Article 49 could be used for data transfers out of the EU for your company or organisation, then please contact us using the details that are coming up right now. 
Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurability production. Until next time, bye-bye.